It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, David Aronovich here. Throughout December, we're revisiting some of the episodes this year that have stayed with us. Back in August, we all watched the scenes of chaos as Afghans mobbed Kabul airport, some even clinging to the wings of American planes as NATO withdrew, desperate for any way out. The Afghan government crumbled before the last NATO plane had even left the runway. Many people faced death if they stayed because they'd worked for NATO and British troops. One of those people was an interpreter who'd been promised safe escape, but was left behind. To leave me behind in Kabul, you are just making Taliban to come and kill me. They will just shoot me. And then you will say, oh, he was shot by Taliban, we didn't kill him. But the fact is, you are creating the way to kill me. In August, when Manveen recorded this episode, we didn't know what would happen next. You're listening to Stories of Our Times and The Times and The Sunday Times. Today, The Interpreter, Part 1, Hunted by the Taliban. Hi, is that... Yes, this is me. How are you? Fine, thank you. Thank you very much for, for doing this. I was on the phone to Ahmed Zai, a former interpreter for British and American forces in Afghanistan who I've been in touch with over the last few days. We're calling him by just his last name to protect his identity. There are thousands of Ahmed's eyes in Afghanistan. We first spoke on Friday morning. Firstly, are you in Kabul at the moment? Yes, I'm in Kabul. What is the situation like? Situation is very bad, to be honest. All the provinces surrounding Kabul are falling in the hands of Taliban. The Taliban are sending messages to everyone to surrender. The government officials are trying to get visas, leave. So most of the people, the security forces, they have lost morale. When the Taliban come, they just hand over the weapons and surrender. The people who had connections or money, they they are just leaving the countries to the neighboring countries. And the ones who work for the government, they are trying to get visas and go to Europe, to India, to Dubai, and uh, save their lives. But for Ahmed Zai, the situation was looking increasingly desperate as the Taliban were closing in on the capital. The only options left 
for interpreters who work for NATO either to remain in Kabul and get killed by Taliban or they cross the border illegally to Iran and go there. Or the NATO countries just help them evacuate. So these are the options left. Everyone is despaired, including me. We were first put in touch with Ahmed Zai by someone he used to work with, Charlie Herbert. My name is Charlie Herbert. I'm a retired Major General. I left the Army two years ago after a 34-year career. I've spent three tours in Afghanistan. In 2007, I was in Kandahar. In 2010, I was commanding a battalion in, in Helmand at the height of the war. And more recently, in 2017-18, I was the senior NATO advisor to the Afghan Ministry of the Interior and the Afghan police. So on all of those deployments, I've been working very closely with interpreters. Charlie, tell me a bit about Ahmed Zai. Tell me a bit about your memories of working with him. Ahmed Zai was the first Afghan interpreter that I worked with in 2007. He's a young guy. He came to work for our NATO headquarters down in Kandahar. I was an interpreter for Americans before that. In 2005 and 6, I was working for them. And then the British uh, Major General, Jacob Page, he was looking for someone who could speak good English. They told me, don't work for Americans. The British General likes your English. Then I began working for uh, Major General Charlie and Major General Jacob Page, who was the commander of the South Regional Command South. So. I was working with senior level government officials, four-star generals. We spent most days in each other's company. He bought us all, at his own expense, local Afghan clothing, and he, he dressed us all. He, he accompanied me. We went on huge, long road trips from Kandahar to Zabul on, on roads that were laced with IEDs and ambushes. And he'd come along and he'd sit in the back of a Humvee with me, and, and, and we'd just laugh along the way. He'd sit and he'd try and teach me Dari and he'd try and teach me Pashto and, and I have no skill for languages and he'd just take the mickey out of my appalling accent. He was just such a fun, such a character. But he desperately helped us to understand what life was like in, in Afghanistan. He became far more than my interpreter. He was my cultural guide, my political advisor to everything that was going on. Charlie treated me like his brother. We were like family members. They were so kind. I imagine at times their lives would have been at risk if they hadn't been able to understand what was happening with you tran yes, translating yeah, for them. Yes, yeah, yeah. It was vital. And we risked our lives. And together we worked like one team. We relied on one another. But what happened was that sometimes they captured Taliban and then they were brought for interrogation. In the interrogation... I was translating. I was not covering my face. And those Taliban recognized me. He attended numerous very high-level delegation meetings across southern Afghanistan with me. And we all know that in those meetings are members of the Taliban. I mean, 100%. And, and they would have seen his face. It's a relatively small place, Afghanistan. Then uh, they began uh, threatening me. They began following me. They tried to target me. And it all happened. After my job working for UK Armed Forces. Earlier this year, he had two particularly awful, I mean, chilling threat messages from the Taliban. In the letters, they said to go to their court 
and speak to them. I mean, of course, if I had gone there to talk to them, they would kill me. So I, I didn't go there. And in the second one, they made it quite clear that their shadow courts had sentenced him to death in absentia. They sentenced me to death. They said that we ordered all our fighters that anywhere you are found, you will be shot and killed. I stopped my kids going to school for the last one year there at home. Even don't go to school, I teach them at home. Is that because you're scared? You're scared of what would happen to them? Yes, because I'm scared. I mean, if the Taliban cannot target me if I hide, then they kill my children. That's what they did to my friend. They killed his 18 years old son just to hurt his father two months ago. That's awful. He is a dead man walking. There is no doubt about this, that they will kill him as and when they find him. Three weeks ago, my son was with me and four gunmen, they charged their AK-47, they tried to kill me. But uh, I recognized them. They knew that I'm going to notice their license plate. Then they just fled. And then I, I changed the location where I live. Are you having to do that a lot at the moment? Yes, yes. Tens of times, not once. It's no exaggeration to say that I would have trusted him with my life. He was brave, he was courageous, he was charismatic, he was loyal. And he's a really close friend. And, and it's a measure of this man that, that 14 years later, we're still in touch with him. And we're still all fighting on a daily basis to put right what appears to be this extraordinary injustice by the Home Office. He got a letter in, in early July confirming that he would be moved to safety in the United Kingdom on the 1st of August. I was supposed to go to UK. I got accepted. They told me that we will issue the visas on July 29. I was overjoyed. I, I, I mean, he's been waiting 14 years for this. For 14 years, he's been ineligible. He was employed on a third-party contract. He wasn't employed directly by the British military, which for 14 years meant under the UK policy he was ineligible for protection and relocation to the United Kingdom. And when the new policy came into effect on the 1st of April, Ahmed Zai applied. And a month later, he, he got a letter from the Ministry of Defence to confirm his eligibility. I took my kids for shopping. All my kids were so happy. They bought their shoes their dresses, and they packed everything. I, I can't tell you. I told everybody that worked with him, you know, back in 2007 about this. We were all just utterly overjoyed for him. I was supposed to go to UK on August 1. On July 29, I was asked to come to the embassy to issue the visas. And two days before he was due to fly, he gets an email from the Ministry of Defence representatives in Kabul to say there's a, there's a problem. We don't have your, your visa. And he's nervous. And, and I spend the next five or six days saying, look, don't worry. Don't worry, my friend. You know, you're in the system. You've, you've been granted eligibility. This is just taking time, but it's coming. And then on the 11th of August, as the situation is crumbling, he, he receives an emailed letter from the Home Office. They told me your case has been rejected and you cannot come to UK. Rejected? So now I'm working. Yeah, it got rejected. I said, why? They said, you are a threat to the UK security. Why? 
They didn't give me anything. You have sought entry clearance for the United Kingdom as a relevant Afghan citizen. However, your presence in the United Kingdom has been assessed as not conducive to the public good due to your conduct, character and associations. I therefore refuse you entry clearance to the United Kingdom under paragraphs, blah, blah. They said, uh, you are a threat to the UK security, so we do not give you the visa. Did they give you any reasons for, for why that was? No, or Do no. you have anything in your past that you think might they might be looking at? Nothing. I told them that you tell me why you are saying that. So at least I get a chance to defend myself. I even told them that you take me to UK and there you put me directly in the prison. Take me to the court. If you believe I'm not the right person, you can even sentence me to death. But to leave me behind in Kabul, you are just making Taliban to come and kill me. The Taliban won't give me a chance to speak. They will just shoot me. And then you will say, oh, he was shot by Taliban. We didn't kill him. But the fact is, you are creating the way to kill me. So then I asked my friends, Charlie and everyone, there must be a mistake. Because after I worked for British, I worked for Americans. I went to the United States in a political leadership program in 2015. They invested on me. I, I came back to Kabul. I'm working for the president right now. I meet the U.S. ambassadors on a regular basis. I have my National Security Council clearance. I have the intelligence clearance. I have the police clearance. And I'm working for the president, so I'm not a threat to the president. Yeah. How could I be a threat to UK when I'm not a threat to the US embassy, to the United States, to the president of Afghanistan? And I tell you honestly, for the last three, four days, I even didn't tell my kids that we have been rejected. We are not going to UK because they, 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 they are just still waiting. They don't know. Yeah, they don't know. They will cry, you know. Yeah, he's told his children. He's got young children. He bought his children clothes for the UK. I mean, this is how sad it is. Good enough to fight with us, good enough to work with us, good enough to die with us, but not good enough to come to the UK. And the Home Office say there's no right to appeal. As far as they're concerned, this is it. That's it. He's not coming. And in the last two weeks, we know of, of at least eight or nine, possibly 10 people would have received this. Now, to give the Ministry of Defence their credit, they have tried to find out, but, but all they come back with is national security, national security. It's really difficult to challenge a decision when the Home Office say national security. Are you telling me this man is a threat to the United Kingdom? Absolute rubbish. The, the odd thing is this, this is a, a very direct attack on, you know, as they say in the letter, his conduct, character and associations. I mean, tell us about what you know about those three things, his conduct, character, and his associations. I mean, his conduct is exemplary. Yeah, his character is superb. Yeah, his associations, I don't know what this is about. Now, he himself is worried that this is a simple mistake because he shares the same name with a Taliban spokesman from the province where, where he originated in, in a period of about 2006, 2007. <laughs> He's worried that this could be as simple as that, a, a name mistake. But they're denying numerous people on the same grounds. I, I worry that people are being potentially condemned to death on allegations and hearsay with no due process. 
How did you feel when you were told you'd been rejected? I just felt that working for the UK forces was just my mistake. Because uh, not only I made my, my life risky, and uh, not only I made Taliban kill me, but I'm also risking the life of my, my kids and their future. And uh, yes, I considered it was a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. And also, even if my kids, if they get a chance to work for the UK Armed Forces, I wouldn't let them do that. They will just create enemies for themselves. And many, many, many other Afghans, they will think 100 times before helping or working for British troops. So it's not a good feeling, to be honest. Coming up, what Ahmed Zai did next as the Taliban rolled into the capital. But first... Hi, I'm John Witherow, editor of The Times. Thanks to you, we get to cover the broadest and most important daily news stories. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plush care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In one provincial capital after another, the Taliban are running up their colours and taking control. The Taliban's advance across Afghanistan is unprecedented. We knew, all Afghans knew, that the single day the NATO troops leave Afghanistan will face these things. So everyone has lost a hope, including me. Are you, are you worried that Kabul will fall? Yes. So given that you've faced so many threats already and now it does look like the country is descending into chaos, 
what mm. what are you planning to do there are two ways one way is to contact americans because i worked for them if they could help me evacuate yeah. or if americans didn't take me there and i get a chance to flee because my wife and kids they told me to leave them behind and flee the country go anywhere i go at least i will be alive i will keep supporting my kids and family so the plan is either to go to panjshir or go and climb the mountains and enter iran and from iran i go to turkey or somewhere and that is in case i was lucky to survive who knows maybe i won't even get a chance to flee i'm so sorry i can only imagine how hard this moment must be i wish you and your family the very best of luck i i really hope you can find a way out thank you so much have a good day just 2 days later on sunday morning the taliban had arrived in kabul the government collapsed later that day it would be confirmed that the president had fled the country ahmed zai had been working in a senior role in the presidential palace Hello. Hi, Manveen from the Times. How are you? Hi. Very good. Thank you. How have you been? I've been watching the news. It's looking so alarming. H- how are things in Kabul? In Kabul, the government collapsed. This morning I came to the palace and everyone was leaving the office running. Everyone left from the palace, the deputies, the directors, everyone. And few minutes later four helicopters landed in the palace and evacuated someone maybe he was the president so if they've evacuated the president if 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 the presidential palace is empty those helicopters have gone and people like you weren't able to get on them what happens to you now yes everyone left the city is total empty i'm going from office to home where my home is occupied by Taliban and the way also has been occupied by Taliban I cannot stay here where I am where where is home it's in the 12th district of Kabul and that area is already taken over by the Taliban yes yes that is taken by Taliban so now I'm going to a different location I'm going to bring my wife and kids and hide them somewhere What are your best chances of getting out of Kabul? I don't have any chance now. The only chance is that right now I'm going to the airport. They are evacuating the embassies. If I get a chance to be evacuated in these flights, otherwise I will just get stuck here. So There's he- no chance left then because all the embassies closed, no visas of flights. The Taliban took over Kabul from different borders. You might be hearing these helicopter so the side you see this helicopter i can i can hear a bit of the chaos behind you will you take your family to the airport and try to get on one of those flights what i will do in the airport even if i go there with the flight my name is not in the evacuation list they want to let me get a flight they didn't tell me to come and we will evacuate you they only evacuate the people they call them and they never called me i really hope you can get your family on one of those flights. Yeah, I hope so. 
We're going to call from here. We're going to try to find out if they can get you on a flight. But how long do you think you've got? How long do you think the people of Kabul have got? To be honest, I mean, today the, the Taliban complete Kabul, you know, maybe in about an hour or two, because most parts of Kabul have been taken by Taliban. What will you do? I will just stay. I'm going to hide myself and uh, I'm going to change my location. If I'm captured, then uh, this between me and Taliban. If I'm not captured, I will just hide, then see if I could get a chance to leave the country. That's the second option. Good luck. I really hope you can stay safe and I really hope you can get out very soon. I hope so. Will you let me know what happens? I will keep you updated. I will send you messages in this number. Please. I will. Good luck. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye. Ahmed Zai's WhatsApp went dead that afternoon. We were really worried for him. Then he sent me a text. It said, The route to my home is already controlled by Taliban and they had checkpoints on the way from the office to my house. I deleted my WhatsApp and burned some documents before I reached the checkpoints. The Taliban didn't recognise me. Now I'm in hiding. We spoke to Charlie yesterday, Monday morning. I'm in touch with him right now. I I spoke to him this morning. I spoke to him yesterday. He's utterly terrified. He's moved to a safe house in Kabul in the last 48 hours. Last night, he was told by his neighbours that the Taliban had come to his door and were asking for him by name. Uh, I mean, these threats against his life could not be more real or more chilling. What do, what, what do you do? What do you do when he phones you late at night to say, I was at, I was at the palace this afternoon. Uh, I saw the helicopters leaving with the president on. What do I do now, Charlie? I mean, what do you say to somebody in most circumstances? I, I wish pretty Patel could take a call from him and explain to him why, why he was good enough to live with us and fight with us and die alongside us potentially, but he's not good enough to come to this country. I mean, could Pretty Patel please explain that? If this is as simple, as you say, a case of mistaken identity, a clerical error, and he doesn't have a right to appeal, he's just been told he and his family are stuck in Kabul. I mean, tell me what that looks like, you know, watching the news this weekend, talking to him. I mean, I, 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 I haven't given up. I'm still working every single contact that I possibly have in the Ministry of Defence to, to challenge this. But I, I feel powerless. So where does that leave him if, if this can't be reversed? I don't know. You know, he and I, he and I are discussing this at the moment. You know, w- what's plan B? I'm looking at, at other options that I, I don't necessarily want to discuss at the moment with other nations. Bitter irony, isn't it, that I find myself negotiating with, with other North American and European nations to potentially save his life. I mean, you can imagine my anger, but I'm looking at other options at the moment as to where we might get him to sanctuary. We asked to speak to someone from the Home Office. They said no one was available. In a statement, a spokesperson said, we have so far resettled over 3,300 Afghan interpreters, staff and their families, who served alongside our brave military. Officials are working as quickly as possible to bring more people to safety in the UK. Vital security checks remain in place to keep our country safe. 
He's one of many I'm in touch with at the moment. He's one of many for various reasons that are not going to be relocated to the UK unless this government fulfills its obligation to them. Myself and 44 senior retired officers, 10 members of the House of Lords, Chiefs of Defence, Chiefs of the Navy, the Air Force, the Army, wrote to the Prime Minister three weeks ago to express our grave concern with the handling of, of interpreters. And in the three weeks since, we've seen almost no action. We now have hundreds, if not thousands, of interpreters and local staff in Kabul, desperate for evacuation. In an interview, the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, admitted that not every Afghan who worked for the British troops will be saved. They've risked their lives the last 20 years and, uh, you know, at the very least our obligation has to be as many of these people through the pipeline as possible. But I, I, I think I also said, you know, it's, and it's a really deep part of regret for me, um, that some people won't get back. Some people won't get back and um, we will have to uh, do our best in third countries to process those people. Why do you feel it so personally, Mr Wallace? Because <laughs> I'm a soldier. Um, because it's sad and the West has done what it's done. Is the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan now inevitable? No, it is not. The future of Afghanistan is squarely in the hands of the Afghan people. A Taliban automatic military takeover is not a foregone conclusion. The likelihood there's going to be the Taliban overrunning everything and owning the whole country is highly unlikely. We're not withdrawing. We're staying. Uh, the embassy is staying. There's going to be no circumstance where you see people being lifted off the roof of a embassy in the, of the United States from Afghanistan. I mean, we have just heard a non-stop stream of choppers all morning going back and forth from the embassy. The truth is, this did unfold more quickly than we had anticipated. Do you feel like NATO has let the Afghans down? Um, I mean, it's, we can say like 50-50. When I spoke to Ahmed Zai on Friday morning, there was a sense that Afghans were divided. I mean, the 50%, we are very much grateful to NATO because they very much supported us in the civilian side, in education, health, everything. We are educated. We are secular. We believe in democracy. We just like youth and the people live in Europe, in America. When the NATO forces first arrived in Afghanistan and the Taliban government was toppled, did you think you must go and work for NATO? What, what was your thinking? Well, those days I lived in, uh, I was in Pakistan. I lived as a refugee. I was a student. We were educated. We knew what Taliban had done, how they treated people. But I was so happy because uh, the Taliban were gone, the terrorists were gone. And that was a new era. That was something we wanted. American troops were there. I saw, okay, now we will rebuild Afghanistan. We had dreams. We had hopes. We believed everything is going in the right direction. The next generation will be educated. The women were so happy. The girls were happy. It was just like watching a dream. I couldn't believe my eyes. Like you, I've been talking to him a lot over the past few days as Kabul is falling and 
His life is, is turned upside down. He's facing the most appalling danger. And I'm always struck by the fact that he always asks me how I am and then tells me to have a good day. It's a measure of the man. He has apologised to me endlessly over the last week. Sir, Charlie, I'm seriously sorry, but I'm, I'm, I'm creating all this work for you. It doesn't matter how many times I tell him, hey, it's not work. this is a pleasure, this is my duty, this is my obligation to you. And I'll keep doing this, I'll keep doing this whilst I possibly can. And Charlie, this is clearly something that, that's you know, weighing heavily on you. I mean, do you, do you feel a, a direct responsibility for it? I feel an obligation for him. And, and you know, you can tell I'm choked up here. Um, yes, of course I feel an obligation to him. It's why I'm working tirelessly 24 hours a day, seven days a week to try to help these people. How do you view the future? Uh, I don't see a future. I, honestly, there's no future for me. To be honest, we are kind of counting the moments to get killed by Taliban and um, we cannot leave. We will get killed and uh, and uh, no hope left. No hope left. I'm so sorry. Mm, uh, you don't have to. I mean, there's nothing you can do. We will have to face what is going to happen to us. Back in August, when this episode was first broadcast, many of you wrote in asking about Ahmad Zai's safety. Join us tomorrow to find out what happened next. You won't regret it. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and the Sunday Times, with my colleague Manveen Rana and our guests, Ahmad Zai the Interpreter and retired Major General Charlie Herbert. The producer was James Shield. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by David Crackles. See you tomorrow. <laughs>